My name is Grant. I'm one of the pastors here at Restored, and we've been in this series um, on healthy relationships the last few weeks, mainly looking at a love for God and a love for our neighbors or a love for people, and looking at how we do that. And today and over the next four weeks, we're going to be transitioning to some of the spaces and some of the specific types of relationships we have where we want to practice healthy relationships. And today, we're going to be looking at the space of our work, our workplaces, what we do, um, and having a healthy relationship with work, which is going to look so different for every single one of us. The reality is some of us work from home and some of us work in the home. Some of us are part of really big teams. Some of us work alone. Some of us are working remotely with coworkers in different parts of the world that we don't even know that well. Whereas some of us have got relationships with a lot of people that share the same space and navigate kind of the awkwardness and joys of all of that. Some of us have got a boss or bosses or are the boss. And some of us love what we do. We love where we do it. We love who we do it with. We find meaning and fulfillment and get joy from our work. And some of us don't. So the reality is we're all in different spaces when it comes to work. And there is no way today that in like 35 or 40 minutes, I can cover every aspect of the theology of work and how to have a healthy relationship with work. But we're going to focus in specifically on this our healthy relationship with work today. And I just wanted to encourage you, if um, you want to take this conversation a little bit further, if you want to explore faith and work a little bit more, there's a book by a guy named Tim Keller called Every Good Endeavor, which I just think is such a helpful resource on a lot of different theological topics around work. I think at least it'll be a good primer for you to think through some of the different aspects of faith and work. I'd really encourage you to get into that. And Probably in all honesty, everything I share today that's good is either from that book or influenced or inspired by that book. I think it's been a really huge gift to me over the years, uh, just understanding the conversation around faith and work. But work or our workplace or what we do is obviously a huge space for our discipleship because we spend so much of our time there. Uh, we spend 90 to 100,000 hours in our lifetime in our workplace, between the ages of 21 and 65. The average person spends 90 to 100,000 hours working, which is a big deal. That's a huge amount of time. That's a third of your life between the age of 21 and 65. And if you kind of condense that, that's 10 or 11 years. Like I'm talking 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365. 10 or 11 years of your life spent doing what you do during the week. Take up the best time of your life, the best energy, the best years of your life you give to those things. And for most of us, we are probably not working with the people we love the most, uh, our family, our closest friends. And probably what we do is satisfying in some ways, but also keeps us away from some of the things we're most passionate about or our, our hobbies or the things we enjoy the most. So we are giving a ton of our time to work, even though we're disconnected from the people and things that we love the most, which is wild. And then alongside that step, I want to put this other stat that if you came to a Sunday gathering like this every Sunday between the age of 21 and 65, that would add up to about four and a half thousand hours of your life. So I want you to hold those two periods of time next to each other, 90, 95,000 hours and four and a half thousand hours, which means that the, the places we go during the week, the work that we do, the things that we do with our time Monday to Friday, Whatever your vocation or calling or work or job is, that thing is shaping you in a significant way. We're doing our best here on Sundays, but we've got two hours a week, you know, in terms of what we do. But if we are not taking the things that we're learning here on Sundays 
to help us to know and follow Jesus and applying them to our lives. It means the majority of our life, those 90 to 100,000 hours, 10 or 11 years of your life, the majority of our living is not spent following Jesus or living for Jesus or serving Jesus. It means we're not living as a disciple in our workspaces. So what I'm hoping to do today is to give you a few things which are going to filter into Monday to Friday. I'm going to work into what we do while we work, and I'm going to change kind of the lens through which we look at work and, and the way that we look at work. But I'll start with a story. Um, this week, I was in a public place, and I was sitting at a table, I, I don't know, reading or something, and there was a guy at a table next to me, and he leant over to me, and he handed me a piece of paper, and he said, could this be you? It was weird. I was like, what is going on in this situation? Could this be you? So in my mind, I'm trying to work out what is going on in the situation. You know, I don't know the story I'm in. I don't know what the situation is. I've got four words and a piece of paper and a stranger. That's all I've got. And I'm trying to make sense of this. So I'm looking at this guy, and I'm firstly thinking, is he hitting on me? Which, of course he could be. I'm a really good-looking guy. I'm a snack. He would be so lucky. But is he hitting on me? Secondly, is he evangelizing me? Like, is this a gospel thing? Like, Christian on Christian evangelism thing going on here? And he's going like weird 90s. I'm going to hand you a little Christian tract. He's been trained to say, could this be you? And then leads into a gospel presentation. Or is it like a cult situation? Like, this guy's trying to draw me into a cult, into some kind of different religious world or something. Is this a sales pitch? Is he a salesman just bored and thinking, I reckon this guy, I could sell to this guy? Or... Is he networking or is he one of those weird people that just likes to make small talk with strangers? And this is what he does. He goes to a public place, hands off the paper and goes from there. It was a weird moment because I was definitely giving off disinterested vibes. Like my face was not keen. I looked confused. I didn't look like I wanted to engage. But I took the piece of paper from him and I read it trying to make sense of what was going on. Now, I bring that up because until we know what situation we're in, it's hard to know how to respond. Until we know what story we're in or what is going on, it's hard to know what should I say, what should I do, should I be scared of this guy, do I want to have this conversation, do I want to go forward, should I shut it down, what do I do? And in this particular situation, it happened that this guy had just eaten a fortune cookie, and he pulled out a piece of paper that said, the next person you meet, the next stranger you meet could become your friend. So he did exactly what I would have done. He reads this, you're going to meet a stranger who's going to become your friend, and he looks up and sees me and he goes, could it be you? And hands it to me. And I read this, I'm like, well, yes, let's become best friends, Dave. I love you, man. No, I smiled at him and politely nodded and then I shut it down. But the reality is, if we don't know the situation we're in, if we don't know the story we're in, it's really hard to respond. And it's the same with stuff like work. If we don't understand the story we're in when it comes to work, it's hard to know what to think, what to do, how to respond, how to work. So what is the story of work that we're living in? What is it that it means for us to work? And where does that understanding of the story come from? Because all of us have got an understanding of what work is and what work does and how to work and, and these narratives and messages about work that we've internalized and received over time. And maybe that was in your family of origin. Uh, growing up, your mom, your dad, your guardian, your grandfather, grandmother, aunts or uncles, just giving you an example about work or messages about work that you internalize, maybe even like you didn't realize that you absorbed these messages and they shape the way you work today. Or maybe it's the culture around us, just what our culture is saying about work has become your narrative. This is what work is, this is what I do, this is how I respond. 
Or maybe it's just your own desire for meaning or significance or purpose or the culture around you. I literally know someone who began studying law because of suits. They watched that show and they said, I want to be Harvey Specter. So they decided to study law and it lasted about a year and they bailed out of that. That was not the call for them. But maybe it's the media around you. Something's shaping the kind of life you want and the kind of way that you're seeing work. You see, the story we live in is the story we live out. What we understand about something is going to determine how we respond. So as we talk about a healthy relationship with work today, I want to lay a theological foundation about the story of work that we can understand how we fit into God's plan for work. And then I want to get a little bit more practical, a little bit more personal, kind of go under the surface and look at our own hearts and our own lives and work. For those of you who are at the retreat and came to my breakout on work, probably the first part of this is going to sound the same to what you heard. And then the back end of this will be quite different. So if you've got a Bible, you can turn to Genesis chapter 2. It's the first book of the Bible right in the beginning. And we're going to look at God's intention for work. Genesis 2 verse 1 says this. So the heavens and the earth and everything in them were completed. On the seventh day, God had completed his work that he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So foundational to this conversation today about work is this big idea that we work because God works. We see that God is a working God here in Genesis chapter 1 and 2. He makes everything that exists. He makes the heavens and the earth and everything else. He makes it. He works. He does it. In fact, the Hebrew word for God's work there is the same one that's used in the Old Testament for the ordinary work that people do. So God's, he is doing a supernatural and incredible work. I mean, he's making stuff come out of nothing. But the word that is used to describe that is the same word that would be used for the work that you're going to do tomorrow and Tuesday and Wednesday. God worked. He made. And I love here that God looked at the end of each day and he looked at the work of his hands and he said, it is good. It's like he reflected on what he'd done. He looked back, he thought about it and he said, it's good. My work is good. He appreciated it. He reflected it. And then he rested. And that's a big part of this. Like this is a bit of an aside because we're talking about a healthy relationship with work today, but it is hard to talk about a healthy relationship with work and not talk about a healthy relationship with rest too. And as people who work hard in a culture that calls us to hard work, we do need to be taking time off from work to rest, to stop, to slow down, to not respond to emails, take calls, be productive. Even I'm talking like errands and chores, just continuing to have tick boxes that we're working through. We need to take time off to rest. And in Genesis, one of the things we see is that God blesses three things to be fruitful. He blesses mankind, he blesses the animals, and he blesses the Sabbath day so that they would bear fruit. And there's something that happens as we stop and as we rest where we are nourished and energized and empowered to continue to work that doesn't happen if we don't take that time off. Eugene Peterson calls the Sabbath day a day to pray and play, a day to spend extended time with God and a day to do the things that most energize and like revive your soul. He also calls a day off, a day where we just do chores and errands and tick boxes, a bastard Sabbath. It's not the real thing. It's not what God intended. We're still being productive. We're still trying to do Whereas the Sabbath day is a day where we stop from doing and rest in God who is in control over everything. So as we talk about a healthy relationship with work, we have to also see that we have a healthy relationship with rest. If we're going to follow a God who works and be workers like him, 
we also have to take our call or our charge from a God who rests and rests like him. So godliness for us looks like not overworking and not being lazy. It looks like working well and resting well and taking both really seriously. A little bit further down in Genesis 2, verse 15, it says, The Lord God took the man and placed him in the Garden of Eden to work it and watch over it. So this is before the fall. Andy mentioned the fall earlier. The, the fall was when Adam and Eve sinned, when sin entered the world, when brokenness and evil and where things not being the way they should be came into our world. And in that moment, the world changed. But before that moment in Genesis 3 that we'll look at in a moment, Adam and Eve still worked. They still had responsibility from God. They still had purpose. And what the Bible seems to show us is that in heaven, in the new heavens and the new earth, after this life, there will continue to be work and responsibility and purpose just without the effects of the curse of Genesis 3 attached to it. What we see in the Garden of Eden is not Adam and Eve by the beach, hammocks, coconuts filled with cocktails, just living a life of leisure. No, they had a balance of work and rest, just like we do today. It means there was work in paradise. There was work in Eden before the fall. Genesis 2 verse 15, what we see is God takes Adam and he puts him in the garden, a specific place to work it and keep it. It's like most of us or all of us in this room, whatever you're doing, whether you are um, working from an office, whether you're retired, whether you're a student, whether you're working in the home, whatever your role is during the week, God puts him into a specific place, a demarcated space and says, this is what I want you to do. And Adam does that there. And the word for work in Hebrew there is the word abad, which can be translated as service, which makes sense. When we work, we serve God and we serve others. One of the things that's kind of amazing is that so many of the things that I need in this life are provided to me from God through people. You know, so many of the things that I need daily come to me from God through people. So Martin Luther describes it this way. He said, God milks the cows through the vocation of the milkmaids. I just, I love that quote. Like today, it might be milk persons or something like that. But I just love the thought of that, the simple task. I'm not a big cow milking guy. I've done it like once or twice in my life. Not a big fan. But that God provides milk for me through the simple work of the people who milk cows. Now, I know this is not like a really good California 2023 example. I said this at the retreat, but I love cow milk. I can do a glass or two of milk before I go to bed. Terrible for my figure, so good for my soul. I love milk. But what's so weird to me is when I started coming out here in 2015, Andy called milk cow milk. I was like, what do you mean milk is from a cow? What do you mean cow milk? Everything else is like a bastard alternative to the real thing, the good thing, you know, cow milk. And it's true, these alternatives are good. I know some of you can't drink milk and all of that. But I love milk, especially in my tea in the morning. So I'll do a little dash of milk. But that little dash is impacted and comes to me through hundreds of people. And he's like, what, why? you're really going into this milk thing, right? You're doubling down to the milk thing. Every morning when I get up, I put on the kettle, I get out my tea bag, I put it in the cup. And when it's ready, just a little dash of milk goes in there. But you know what? I can't make milk on my own. I don't have the skills, I don't have the knowledge, I don't have the time to go to town making all this milk. So I need a real estate agent to rent out or sell a farmer a piece of land where you can build a farm. Now, I don't even know all that goes into a farm. I'm guessing the farmer knows. Putting in paddocks and stables and farmhouses and machinery and buying the cows that are needed for all of this and then 
hiring and training all of the staff that are going to work on the farm, then milking those cows, and then putting it into bottles. Well, pasteurizing it first, because I don't want to get sick. Putting it in bottles, labeling it. We need a whole refrigeration situation going on. Getting it into trucks, taking it to a store. We need a whole store set up with like an owner and managers and staff and someone to stock the shelves. And then finally, I walk in and pick up my milk and take it home just so I can put a dash in my tea in the morning. God provides my milk through hundreds of people who are doing their jobs on a daily basis. And that's the same for us. As we work, we serve others and love our neighbor through the work that we do. Abud is also used in the Old Testament for worship. So that word for work means service, and it means worship, which is such a wild thing. As you think about whatever it is that you're going to spend tomorrow doing, you can do it in such a way that it is worship to God and service to mankind, which is such a beautiful thing. That means no matter what it is that you do, whether you enjoy your job or not, whether you find it meaningful or not, it can be worship to God and you can be loving your neighbor through the purpose that you find in what you do every day. Whether you're inventing medicine that saves lives, teaching, performing surgeries, coding a website, managing a team, preaching a sermon, brewing a beer, whatever you're doing can be worship to God and can be serving the people around you. So in Genesis 2, what we see is that our work can be that, worship to God and service of others. This beautiful original intent of God in our work. But in Genesis 3, what we see is that our work in this world is broken by the curse. It's impacted by the fall. Sin changes the way things work, and our work becomes cursed. Lindsay, if you could put up Genesis chapter 3, verse 17 to 19, we see some of the effects of sin and the curse on our work. Verse 17 says our work is going to be hard. It's going to be demanding because we're going to um, eat by means of painful labor all the days of our life. Verse 18 says our work is going to be frustrating. It's going to produce thorns and thistles for us. Imagine, like, we didn't need those. They didn't need to be thorns and thistles in the world, but they are which frustrate us and irritate us and make the work that we do annoying and more difficult. What about verse 19? You will eat bread by the sweat of your brow. Your work will be tiring and draining. Probably each of us in this room, whatever you're doing, however meaningful you find it, whether you feel like you've got your dream job or whatever it is, can think of those three things this last week. Work was hard. Work was frustrating. Work was tiring. I didn't enjoy what I did, even if you love your work. So I want to say to you, don't believe the lie. If you've got your dream job, that there's something out there that's better for you. Work will always be that way. We will always face these challenges and the things that we do. Even meaningful, beautiful, satisfying work will be hard, frustrating, and tiring, probably daily. Work is good, and it is God-given. And it can provide so many things for us. But at the same time, there is no life hack, no self-help book. There is no way that we can just hustle harder to overcome the curse. Those things from Genesis 3 will always be challenges we face as we work in this life. Which means that in our relationship with our work, as we seek to follow Jesus and live as disciples, we are going to find that we have difficult bosses and that we feel stressed and frustrated. We are going to have unreasonable co-workers and clients. We are going to feel disappointed and drained at times. It doesn't mean you're doing it wrong. It doesn't mean you're not following Jesus well. It's a reality of the world that we live in as we seek to serve him. We said earlier that the story we live in is the story 
we will live out. And when we understand kind of the story of our work in this Genesis framework, we'll understand that our story starts with God. When I was 16 or 17, I remember doing like a, a test online. Um, the word's gone out of my mind now, but a, an aptitude test or something like that so that someone could say, Grant, these are probably the jobs that you're suited to. And I remember going to an office and sitting with someone and them saying, listen, these are probably the, the five kind of categories of what you should do with your life. I think that's a really good and practical thing to do. But Genesis shows us that our work starts with God, not our aptitude, not, not our skills, not our financial goals or our five-year plans, not like the standard of living that we would like to have, not our gift set or any of those things. Our work starts with God. All of those might be good things to think through and work with, but actually our work has to start with God. And in Colossians 3, Paul the Apostle speaks about it this way. He says, whatever you do. So for Christians, he's saying your entire life. Today, we're speaking more specifically about work. But whatever you do, do it from the heart as something done for the Lord and not for people, knowing that you will receive the reward of an inheritance from the Lord to serve the Lord. You serve the Lord Christ, which is such a beautiful stewardship verse. This is one of the big themes of the retreat that we've just had. And but Colossians 3 is saying to us a huge thing about the way we live our life, starting everything with God. And it's saying to us that, yes, Jesus is our Savior. He's our King. He's our Creator. He's our Teacher. He's our Lord. He's everything. But it's also saying that ultimately Jesus is our boss. And in all that we do, we're doing it for Him, like as an offering to Him. Today we came and we worshiped. Brendan spoke about the offering some of us might have given in this room. But tomorrow, as we go to work, we do the same thing. We offer our lives and our time and our gifting and our energy, not just to our boss or our company or the work that you do. We offer it ultimately and first to God. We're saying, Lord, I, I give this to you. I live my life as an act of worship to you. Let it be pleasing to you as I do this in the many different spaces we spread out, spread out to and live our lives. Jesus is our ultimate boss, and our work is unto him. It's an act of worship and sacrifice to him. And what an amazing privilege that is. If we see our work in that way, it completely transforms what we do and how. Now, one of the false messages that has kind of come in and out of the church every couple of decades, every couple of centuries from the time of Jesus is that you are only doing meaningful work that has an eternal impact if you work for the church, if you're a pastor, or if you're like a full-time Christian. Like if you're one of those, yeah, your work counts. Everyone else, you're kind of out there to give to kingdom work and to do evangelism, that's it. But actually what we're looking at today is saying that's not true. It's saying all work can be worship and all work can be service, including working for the church, but everything else as well. This morning, um, I was working from Hardyhood, the church offices, uh, before I came here, and I went downstairs and I got a coffee. And those people, if, if their hearts, if, if their desire is Godward, that can be an act of service to me and an act of worship to God. Whatever you do, whether it's something that seems impressive or not, it can have meaning or purpose because of the motivation that is behind it. 1 Corinthians 10.31 says, So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do everything for the glory of God. And whatever tomorrow looks like for you, as long as it's not illegal or immoral. <laughs> I don't know what some of you guys do. As long as it's not illegal or immoral, this can be an act of worship to God that brings him glory and puts a smile on his face as you serve him wherever you go and in whatever you do. 
The Latin phrase quorum Deo means to live before the face of God, which I think best sums up how we should work. It's like tomorrow, wherever you go in your car or if you're at home or whatever your first meeting of the day or your first task of the day looks like, we do it before the face of God, with God and aware of God and for God, no matter what the work is. You see, we don't waste our lives by what we do, but by why and how. And that's what this is saying here is actually it's not what you do tomorrow that matters, it's why you do it and how you do it. And if it's done quorum Deo, it glorifies and pleases God. One last story that'll be familiar to those of you who are at the retreat. Johann Sebastian Bach was a musical prodigy. He wrote over a thousand songs in his life. I've only heard a few of them, so I can't tell you that they're all bangers, but I hear good things. So he was, um, that was a slow burn. I like that you laughed at it. We got a few. Um, one of the things I found so interesting about him is that he signed his work with two sets of initials, SDG uh, and JSB. JSB is him, Johannes Sebastian Bach. SDG is Soli Deo Gloria. It's Latin for all glory to God. And I love that he owned it in two ways. He's like, this is my work. Like, I did this. Like, with my energy, my time, my talent, I did this. But also, I did this for God and with God and through the gifts that God has given me. So this is what I do, but this is also what God has done. I'm doing this as an offering to him and to honor him and with him. His whole life had been reshaped through a fresh lens of what work is and what work should look like. And you and I, tomorrow as we go to do whatever we do, we can also work in such a way that it's service to people and worship to God. But I want to end today looking at us and work. And I want to go a little bit below the surface to some of our motivations and to our hearts. Because people work for so many different reasons. We do what we do with our weeks, with our time, for so many different reasons. And often it's around our own identity. So often what we do is around like seeing our lives as having value or worth or esteem. You know? And we find that through our work or our salary or our title or whatever it might be. And we turn work into something that it was never meant to be according to Genesis 1 and 2. We turn work into something that God did not design it to be. We were trying to get things from our work that we can't get. We can only get them from God. And our work will let us down if we try and find them in our work. One of the things we know as Christians, especially if you've been in church for a while, we get the gospel drummed into us that we're saved by grace through faith, not by works. So we know that we're not saved or made right by God by what we do. But at the same time, functionally, we try and justify our existence by what we do. We try and prove that we have worth by what we do. We try and show that our lives have meaning by what we do. So sometimes we can work really, really hard to save ourselves. We can work really, really hard to try and prove that we are more, or we try and prove that we have the worth that we're looking for in our jobs. We try and prove it through what we do. So we can feel either really encouraged or discouraged by the results. You know, if you're crushing it in the workplace, you're like, I'm saved. I'm justified. My life is worth and value. And if not, if something goes wrong, we can feel the opposite because our identity and our justification is so linked to what we do. Tim Keller in chapter 12 of Every Good Endeavor has this really amazing illustration. He speaks about a pregnant woman who loved being pregnant. Now, I'm grateful in a few reasons that I'm a man and not a woman. One of them is because I don't have to go through pregnancy. I've watched my wife do it. She's current, some of you don't know this, she's currently 16 weeks pregnant. We're having a little boy in April next year, which we're thrilled about. But I've watched her go through pregnancy over the last while and seen how difficult it was. 
seen how sick she's been, sick how, seen how tired she's been, seen how much the pregnancy has taken out of her. And I know she's not enjoying it. It's been a hard thing, even though it's a really joyful and beautiful thing. So this woman was saying that she loved being pregnant, not because she enjoyed pregnancy, but because she loved productivity. She loved feeling productive 24-7. So she was saying, even if I lie on the couch, even if I'm being sick in the bathroom, whatever it might be, I am being productive. I can take a nap. I can watch a show. And I'm being productive all of the time, unlike the rest of you. She didn't love being pregnant. She loved being productive. And Keller says about this, many people are trying to get a sense of self through their work, through productivity and success. These motivations are what we would call the work beneath the work. So as we talk about healthy relationships with work today, the question I want to ask you is, what is the work beneath the work for you? Why do you do what you do in the way you do it? What is your motivation? What is your why? What is below the surface of what you do? What are you striving to get from your work? Martin Luther again said, when we fail to believe that God accepts us fully in Christ, and when we look to some other way to justify and prove ourselves, we commit idolatry. And I know this is a church that's spoken about idolatry a lot over the years. I don't, I don't think we've spoken about it too much recently. But sometimes for, for me growing up, I would read about an idol in the Bible and it felt so unrealistic. I would think, why on earth would you worship or pray to or sacrifice this little figurine? It didn't make any sense to me growing up, you know, in, in my culture and background. But an idol is anything that is more important to us than God. An idol is anything that we look to to give us something that we should be looking to get from God. Keller says it this way, an idol is whatever you look at and say in your heart of hearts, if I have that, then I'll feel my life has meaning. Then I'll know I have value. Then I'll feel significant and secure. And he talks about two types of idols surface idols and root idols, or branch idols and kind of deep idols. And what he means by that is there's a bunch of idols which we can notice, maybe about one another, like the people you know best in this room. You can see actually some of the idols they might struggle with, some of the things they might look to to give them meaning and purpose and value and all of these things. I can see it in the way you live your life, you know. And when it comes to work, that could be the case too. We could see someone overworking. We could see someone being lazy, whatever it might be. These things expose, on a surface level, something that's going on under the, under the scenes, under, underneath the surface. But there's more to it than that. You see, often what happens in discipleship, and something that can be problematic, is we just call out what we can see, not knowing what's going on under the surface. Why do we do the things that we do? And these are the deep or root or core idols that he's speaking about. We need to deal with the cause of our idols, why we do what we do, the work beneath the work, if we're to live satisfied for God in a joyful and kind of flourishing way. So let me look at an example of this with overwork. You would probably notice in someone's life if they are overworking. You would probably notice if they are at work really early and really late on the phone or on the computer all of the time, constantly talking about work, distracted by work, that work has become their life. And not just that they're busy with work, but work is consuming them, it's defining them, it is shaping them. But there could be a lot of different reasons that someone could do that. For example, it could be a deep idol of comfort. Maybe someone has chosen a lifestyle that they want to have. 
And because of that, they're saying, I will work really, really hard. I don't mind sacrificing time with family and friends. I don't mind sacrificing gathering with the church. I'm going to work really hard because I want to have a certain comfortable life. I want to live in a certain area. I want to be able to buy certain things. I want to be able to do certain trips or go to certain restaurants or whatever it is. I I want this kind of life so I don't mind sacrificing so that I can experience those comforts and pleasures and joy. Or on the other hand, maybe it's a power idol. You're saying, I really want to get ahead in life. I really want to have influence. I really want people to look to me as successful and significant. So I'm going to work really hard to kind of climb whatever ladder there is around so that I can have a position where people look at me and think, wow, look at them. And I can tell them what to do and call the shots and make changes and I will feel powerful. Or maybe it's with approval. Maybe for you, you're working hard because you want people to look at you and say, I'm amazed at what you've achieved. I'm amazed at what you've done. I'm amazed at the kind of person you are. You're obviously really smart and really capable and really gifted and that they would encourage us and celebrate us for what we've achieved. Or maybe it's control. Andy spoke about this this morning when he was um, vision casting so well for the parenting workshop. But he was saying um, sometimes with our upbringing, we either reflect or reflect or reject. And that can happen. Maybe you grew up in a really hard situation. Your life was really tough, so you worked your way out of it. You said, I don't want that kind of life. I'm going to reject what I've had. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to give my family, I'm going to give my spouse, I'm going to give myself a different kind of life. I'm going to do whatever it takes to climb out of that. Or maybe you've received that. Actually, you're you're reflecting what you experienced. You're saying, I want the same kind of life I had. I want that security, so I'm going to work hard to make sure that I get it. All of these different roots or core idols under the scenes that lead us to do a certain type of thing. When it comes to work, you could think of a lot of different examples. It could be overwork or it could be laziness. It could be actually someone just constantly cutting others down around them, just slandering or gossiping about someone. It could be someone always sucking up to the boss, just always trying to be that person who's like winning their attention, you know, just being loved by them, appreciated by them, trying to get ahead. It could be ignoring or mistreating the people in the office who you can't get anything from. Just, you know what, like, I I can't get ahead helping them, so I'm not going to. I'm going to ignore them. They don't matter to me. They don't help me with my goals and my purpose. But when we look at those surface idols, I just want to say that is not the way of the story of God when it comes to work with Genesis 1 and 2. That is not the way that work is described in Colossians chapter 3, that we would work unto the Lord That is not what healthy relationships with work look like. But to change our relationship with work, we need to look at the work underneath the work and ask God for change and help and satisfaction in those areas. So if as I spoke about the idea of power as a core idol, you connected with that and you thought, I want to have that influence. I want to have that power. I want to get to the top so that I can change things. Probably for you, the deepest desire is influence and recognition, and the greatest fear is humiliation, that you would be embarrassed by others or embarrassed in life. Or if you see control, your greatest longing, probably like me, is for security and comfort. You just want to know, okay, everything is going to be fine. Like, I can have this under control. I'm not going to be surprised by anything. There's not going to be anything that's going to shock me. Or if you see comfort, you'll be longing for pleasure and satisfaction and freedom. Or if you seek approval, you'll long to be accepted or desired or wanted. And being rejected by others would be your biggest fear or nightmare. And the gospel speaks to each one of these root idols. 
The gospel speaks to each one of these core things inside of us, the work underneath the work, and points us to Jesus as the one who would satisfy us. If for you it's power, one of the things we see is that Jesus, the most powerful person ever, the King of kings and Lord of lords, you know, he didn't come to be served, but he came to serve and lay down his life as a ransom for other. And not only did Jesus serve us, ultimately giving his life on the cross, but Jesus also pointed all of the glory to the Father in heaven. He didn't take all the glory for himself. He gave it away to the Father. And like him, we don't have to get glory from people. We don't have to be in charge. We can serve others humbly. Or if it's comfort, the reality is we can never fully experience comfort and security in this world. But Jesus does offer us the Holy Spirit to comfort us. And one thing we know is that even though our life will be uncomfortable, up and down, sometimes great, sometimes difficult, we can know that in this life and into eternity, we can rest secure in the love of God, which will be unchanging towards us. And when it comes to control, who knows what the future holds? The world is wild. The last few years have been interesting, right? Uh, if you look at the news at the moment, just geopolitically, economically, what's going on, I don't know what the next few months holds, you know? I don't know if the economy is going to do well or not. I don't know if your industry or your job, what that means, but I do know this, that Jesus is in control of everything. So if we're going to trust in our accreditation, our degrees, our work, our income, our experience, they could let us down. But if we're going to trust in Jesus, we are trusting in the one who is in control of the world and the universe and everything. And lastly, approval. Another thing that I struggle with. If I start from a place of knowing that I'm approved of, by the most important person in the universe. It changes my experience horizontally. I know in this life, I will let people down. I will fail and disappoint people. People will reject me, they'll be disappointed in me, they'll be hurt by me. I'm gonna have to apologize and ask for forgiveness. But even if I fail, and even if I mess up in a significant way, where all the people that matter most to me reject me, I can still rest in the fact that I'm approved of by the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. The gospel gives us an incredible way of not being ruled by these things under the surface, but finding satisfaction in Jesus so that the work under the work doesn't determine how we work, so that we can work in a different way in this world. Now, what I said up front is that we work as those who serve God who works. But what the gospel shows us is that the ultimate work, the most important work, has already been done by Jesus. Now, we're trying to justify our existence. We're trying to prove that we have um, value and worth in this life, at least I am. But Jesus has already done the work of that. In his life, in his death, in his resurrection, he has lived the perfect life that you and I strive to live. And he credits his righteousness. He credits his goodness. He credits his perfection to our account. And he takes our fallenness and our imperfection on himself so that you and I can live with a sense of approval and value and love and security in him. He has finished the work so that we don't need to strive with our work in this life. What is the work beneath the work for you? What is the thing that motivates you? What is the thing that drives you? What is the thing that leads you to do these things that maybe you know are not good or not healthy? What makes you feel justified if it's not Jesus? I'll end with this last quote. When the work under the work has been satisfied by the Son. All that's left for us to do 
is to serve the work we've been given by the Father. When the work underneath the work has been satisfied by Jesus, all that's left for us to do is to serve the work we've been given by the Father. So I'd love to pray that for you today as we end. Pray that the work underneath the work would be satisfied by Jesus, that you would feel content in him, that he would meet the need that you're looking for there, that he would expose and reveal that, and then he would satisfy that. But then also, as we go into the week ahead, that you would feel commissioned and sent by God to do the work that the Father's given you, that you would do it with a new sense of purpose and clarity, that I'm called to serve and worship in the place that God has placed me now. So let me pray for you, and then we'll take communion. Father, I trust that as I've spoken today, by your Spirit, you've revealed what the work underneath the work is for each of us. If not, Lord, I ask that you would, today, tomorrow, this week, reveal that thing that drives us to work in the way that we do. Reveal the work underneath the work, and I pray, Jesus, you would satisfy us in you. I thank you that the work is done that we don't have to strive to justify our existence, that we have the approval of the one who matters most, the one who is in control, the one who is all-powerful and yet gave it up, and the one who can comfort us and satisfy us in his love. I pray, Lord, for that, that you would change our hearts. And I also ask you, Holy Spirit, for your empowering and help to go into this week with whatever we've got to do, whether we are bored or stressed, whether excited, or a bit despondent in our jobs. I thank you, Holy Spirit, for your help to do the work that we do this work in a way that satisfies us and which really honors you.